you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Nehemiah 2, verses 1 to 10. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, how appropriate to sing Jesus paid it all and how much we owe, a debt that we cannot repay. We're so thankful for grace, unmerited gift of salvation through faith in your son, Jesus. For Jesus paid it all. Father, we're also thankful for your inspired and errant word. We're thankful for the opportunity to learn from a man named Nehemiah, a leader's leader, a man who not only led but had impeccable organizational and administrative gifts, a man of integrity, a man who seized the day. Father, may we imitate those aspects of Nehemiah's life that would be so helpful in ours. Father, help us to learn from this historical man and help us to model those aspects of his life that are honoring to you. Guide our time, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Growing up, one of my childhood friends was a guy named Brian. Brian and I met in fifth grade in the same church. We went to arch-rival high schools, and so we played sports against one another all through high school. My team always won. Actually, the truth is, Brian was a far superior athlete to me, probably the best athlete I've personally ever known. When we went off to college, we chose to go to the same college, and we chose to room together, and roomed together most of the time that we were there. Upon graduation, for me, I went to Illinois to graduate school, and he went into the military and served faithfully, went overseas and served faithfully in a war. And while he was there, he met his bride, or his bride-to-be. I remember the day he called me, he asked if I would fly to Norfolk, Virginia, and if I could be the best man in his wedding. Of course, it was an honor to do so. So a few weeks later, or whenever the time period was, I flew to Norfolk, got off the plane, rented a car, immediately went to the tuxedo place to pick up my tuxedo and have it sized, and then went to his apartment. I arrived pretty early in the day on Friday. I assumed that that was appropriate because, of course, we would be having a rehearsal Friday afternoon or night, and then we would have the wedding ceremony 10 o'clock Saturday morning. Upon arriving there, I, I noticed that I seemed to have the only garment bag in the room, but you know what, there's closets, not my worry, not my responsibility. I'm the best man, so I don't care about what others look like. I just have to take care of myself. I remember saying to Brian, uh, what time is the rehearsal? He said, oh, we're not going to have one. And I thought, wow, that's not what I'm learning in seminary. But, you know, what do I know? I don't know much about this wedding stuff. So, okay, we aren't going to have a rehearsal. So we went out to dinner that night, and uh, then he wanted to go miniature golfing. So 
Uh, the groomsmen, we all went miniature golfing and stayed out till like 2 in the morning. I'm like a 9.30 p.m. guy. On a really wild weekend, I stay out till 10. Woohoo! So we're out till 2 in the morning, and I'm thinking, man, we are out really late for a 10 o'clock wedding. But you know what? I'm the best man. My job is to make sure he shows up and he has fun. It doesn't matter anything else. So we get back to the apartment. It's now about 2.30, and he says, uh, it might be time that you and I write the service. What service? The wedding service. Doesn't the pastor, doesn't he write that? He said, oh, well, I really have never met him. He just told me to show up with an order of service, and he'll wing it. Now, I'm a second or third year seminary student. I don't know anything about writing a wedding service, and Brian knows even less. Trust me. So at 2.30 in the morning, we're writing a wedding service, and then it dawns on me, if we're writing the wedding service, what's in the pamphlets or the brochures that we're going to hand out? He said, oh, we haven't done that yet. That's the next thing we have to do. <laughs> True story, not exaggerating, not making it up. So it's about 3.30 in the morning, and we're typing out the order of service for the brochure, hoping against hope that Saturday morning we can find a printer that's actually open who's willing to print these things for the service. So at 8 in the morning, we all arrive at the place where the guys pick up their tuxes. Two of them don't fit. I don't know how big, but I'm saying that they were probably 45-inch waist and the two guys were like 32s. I mean, they were swimming in these things, but there is absolutely no chance or any time for any kind of adjustment. They're just going to have to pin this baby. So they pin it, and we're going forward. We find a printer who will actually print this thing, and we arrive, no exaggeration, I'm not lying, at 9.55 for the 10 a.m. wedding service where we're going to hand the order of service to a pastor who has never met the groom. Well, we weren't met by the pastor. We were met by the bride's mother. <laughs> I had never met the bride's mother, but she did not like me. She did not like Brian. And the first question she asked is this, where's my corsage? You see, Brian was, was responsible for all the flowers. And he dutifully got a corsage for every woman and a boutonniere for every guy except one. The mother of the bride. How do you forget her? So now we have three minutes before the service begins. I'm the best man. They give me some keys. I'm on a military base. And it is my job, believe it or not, to find a florist to go get a corsage for the mother of the bride. By God's grace, I actually find a florist that's open. I buy the only corsage that they have. It doesn't match anything and I walk into the service about 15 minutes late. Well, they haven't started the service because I've got the rings. But they're all up front, and I've got to walk the aisle with everyone glaring at me. Everybody thinks I am the worst best man. I am totally hot and sweaty. I am windblown, and I am ticked off. On the way in, I kind of throw the corsage to the mother of the bride. And <laughs> what are you going to do? And I come to the front, and when the entire thing is over and we get through this, my friend says, I have a secret I'm going to tell you. 
You can't tell anyone. So now I'm telling you the secret 30 years later. My wife and I were married three months ago. We eloped. But we can't tell her parents or mine because they'll be angry. You think they might be a little bit? Brian lacks leadership, organization, administrative skills. Brian needs the book of Nehemiah. Perhaps so do we. Let me pick up. Oh, by the way, someone asked me in the service just a moment ago, are they still married? Yes, they are. But the mother-in-law still hates Brian. (laughs) Just going to tell you. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. The text begins by telling us it's in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. In the Persian monarchies, they mark the calendar by the number of years that the present king has been in office. So he's been in office for two decades. It's the month of Nisan, which is April, May. That means that it's been between four and five months since chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, it's the month of Kislev, which is the month of December. It's at that point that one of Nehemiah's brothers returns from Jerusalem, a place that I think Nehemiah has never been to. And he gives a report to Nehemiah that the city is in ruins and the people are fearful for their lives. Things are not going well. So it's been four to five months when Nehemiah has been praying before the Lord. He's been fasting before the Lord. He's been mourning before the Lord, asking God what is his part in restoring the walls and bringing hope to people he has never met. They're the people of his ancestry. But not only has he been praying and fasting, he's also been plotting and preparing and thinking through what are the steps necessary that God might use me in their lives. According to the text, all the time during these four to five months when Nehemiah has been heartbroken, he's been adequately doing his job. He's able to compartmentalize. He may be in emotional ruin, yet he still knows that he needs to serve the capacity that God has given, so he's moving forward. He's a wonderful example of someone who, even in spite of the difficulty in his or her life, still does the responsibilities that God has entrusted to them. And so while doing these responsibilities, he has been looking just normal in the presence of the king. Now, we have a number of reliefs from Parasopolis. They're Persian reliefs. And in these, we have pictures and we have writings of what is proper etiquette when you come into the presence of a Persian monarch. Part of proper etiquette includes that you must always look happy. In fact, if you look downcast in the presence of a Persian monarch, most Persian monarchs took that in one of two ways. The first way is that it indicates your displeasure in the king. Not a very safe interpretation. The second 
indicates your potential thoughts of assassination of the king. So proper etiquette always mandated that you smiled, that you were happy in the presence of the king. In addition, we learn from these reliefs of Persia that you're to always put your hand over your mouth so you do not offend the king with bad breath. Search with retsin and Tic Tacs, they don't cut it. You need to have the proper etiquette. And at a moment of weakness, after four or five months of heartbreak, Nehemiah has a slight breakdown. He frowns in the presence of the king. And the king says, ah, this is nothing but sadness of heart. But the king has such confidence in Nehemiah that he doesn't assume either one or two. He doesn't assume either displeasure or assassination. He says, what's going on? What's going on in your heart? And immediately the text says, before he answers, Nehemiah sends up a 911, an SOS prayer. He wants God to be a part of this. He wants God to give him the words, the demeanor, the tone in which he answers the king. I think the answer is brilliant. Let me read part of verse 3. It says, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lives in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. There's brilliance all over this answer. It may not appear that way, but it is a very wise answer. The first thing is, he says, let the king live forever. In other words, I don't have displeasure in what you're doing, and I certainly have no thoughts of assassination. May you live forever, O king. The second thing that's really brilliant is that he mentions the place of his ancestors. Monarchs in this time period are obsessed with ancestors. They're obsessed with what people will say about them when they're dead. They're obsessed with having a large marker for their burial spot. They're obsessed with what's written in the history books. He uses language that's going to draw the king in. He uses language about ancestry, and the king is all over that. And the third thing that's really brilliant is he doesn't mention the word Jerusalem. Now that may seem like, who cares? That's where he wants to go. Why not mention it? It is a very big deal. You see, this king, Artaxerxes, is partially responsible for the walls that are being destroyed and have been destroyed over in Jerusalem. This king has a very poor impression of Jerusalem. Let me read from the book of Ezra, chapter 4, verses 11 to 15. Ezra 4, 11 to 15. This is 10 years earlier. This is about a decade into Artaxerxes' reign, starting in verse 11. This is the copy of the letter that you sent, or that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, they send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. That's referring first to 536 when Zerubbabel came back with the first wave of Jews about 90 years ago. It's referring to the second wave about 10 years earlier when Ezra brought Jews back. He says, those Jews, they're troublemakers. That city of Jerusalem, it's nothing but trouble. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls. They are repairing the foundations. 
Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that you may make a search of the book and the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and learn that the city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up from it from of old. You see, Artaxerxes has a very, very poor impression of Jerusalem. In fact, although I won't read it, in verses 18 to 22 of Ezra chapter 4, the king essentially says, don't allow those walls to be rebuilt. Keep them in ruin. Keep those people in Jerusalem, those wicked people, keep them in their place. And so when Nehemiah is tasked by God after four or five months of prayer and fasting and mourning, and God speaks to his heart and says, Nehemiah, I want you to go back and I want you to rebuild the walls. The first thing he does is he reminds the king he's loyal. May you live forever. The second thing he does is he talks about ancestry. He's building a bridge. And the third thing he does is he does not mention the word Jerusalem. This is a wise leader. Now you may say, well, he's being a little bit underhanded. I don't think so. He's obviously going to tell the king very shortly where he's going. But he's building bridges. I pity the individual who always feels like they need to just throw up everything that's on their mind right at the, the, the moment that it crosses their mind. There is a level of leadership, a level of, of tact and wise thoughts and tone that really matters. And Nehemiah gives it to us. From time to time, we've all known individuals. They say things like this. I just say it like it is. I'm real. Who I am is what you get. And they use those statements as excuses for not thinking through what they're going to say. For just spitting out what crosses their mind. For not being careful with their tone. For not being tactful. But wise leadership thinks through. It sends up an SOS prayer, a 911 prayer. I wonder what would happen in my life before I answered, when someone asked me something, if I just said, Lord, give me wisdom to answer well. Give me the right tone. Allow me to be tactful and truthful. I wonder what would happen in my life if I followed Nehemiah's model and I sent up an SOS prayer and I thought through how to respond in a wise way. He's had four to five months of praying morning and fasting, but he's also been preparing, plotting, and planning. He knows this conversation is going to come. And he's thought through, how do I handle the conversation in a very wise way? I remember years ago, I was about 25, I was pastoring in Texas. There was a, a free church pastor in Lake Jackson, Texas. He was uh, about 52, I think. And for whatever reason, he decided he was my mentor. I definitely needed a mentor, but I didn't need him. He was this individual who, whatever came to his mind, he just spit it out. And he always said it in such a nasty way that sometimes we would be in a room 
And a number of us would want to do the same thing, and he would want to do it with us, but he would say it in such a way that we all wanted to vote against him, even though what he was saying is what we believed. Have you ever known someone like that? Nehemiah is not like that. In verse 4, he sends up an SOS, a 911 prayer. Oh Lord, I need help now, amen. And he had thought through and he handled the conversation well. He's fully relying on God. In this regard, I think of one of the reformers. You might think I'm trying to trumpet this reformer because it's two sermons in a row that I mentioned his name. I'm not trying to trumpet him. I just, it fits my sermon. But some people have uh, accused John Calvin of being just a, an ivory tower theologian. He wasn't that way at all. He was a very thoughtful, pastoral type of man. Certainly with some shortcomings, no doubt about that. But he was not an ivory tower theologian. He wrote commentaries on two-thirds of the Bible. He wrote the standard theology, the best theology of its day, the theology that remained the standard for 200 years. And yet every time when he walked up to the pulpit, he was mumbling to the Lord, Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, come. He may have been brilliant. He may have been very erudite, but he was fully reliant on the Lord. That's the way Nehemiah comes across in this book. That's what needs to be true in my life and in yours. Let's pick up in verse 5. Let's read verses 5 and 6 of Nehemiah 2. Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. This is what I think is going on. Nehemiah has been fasting, praying, mourning, for four and a half months, one day he has a bad day. He clearly is not happy. The king calls him on it. The king says this is only sadness of heart. Nehemiah responds, long live the king. I want to return to the city of my ancestors. Doesn't mention Jerusalem. Is very tactful. And then the king asks the most important question. I think verse 6 is a test. You see, this king has heard a thousand pie in the sky Dream scenarios. People are always coming to the king with a great plan. He wants to know, have you thought through the plan? Have you considered all the angles? When are you going? When are you returning? What are the details? Have you thought this out? The king's tired of individuals who have not plotted, planned, and prepared. They've only prayed. It's a both and. It's not one or the other. And so Nehemiah says, well... This is the route I'm going to take. There's two possibilities. One was 800 miles, one was 1,000. He certainly chose one. He figured out how long it would take there. He's done research. He's not been to Jerusalem, so he's had to ask somebody, how long does it take to get there? How long does it take to get back? How bad are the walls? How long will it take to rebuild them? He's going to hang around as governor for a little while. He's got to factor that in. In order to answer 
the question. He's got to have plotted and planned and prepared the entire process. He's thought through it. My father used to say this, pray powerfully and plan well, otherwise there will be poor performance. So if you meet my dad, tell him I memorized it. He made us say that a thousand times. Prior planning and prayer prevents poor performance. That was his little saying that became what we had to reply back in a mantra to my dad. Only one of like 3,000, he's a military guy, you understand. Prior planning and prayer prevents poor performance. Nehemiah has thought through this. I pity the individual who says things or thinks things like this. My bride and I are getting married tomorrow. We don't need premarital counseling. We got Jesus. I know that we have a lot of debt, but we don't need a budget because we got Jesus. I know I've struggled with pornography, but I don't need accountability in my life because I got Jesus. We've been married for 35 years and we're struggling, but we don't need professional counseling because we got Jesus. We don't need a budget in our lives. God will take care of the finances. We got Jesus. Nehemiah gives us a different model. It's powerful, reliant prayer upon God. He fasted, he prayed, and he mourned for four and a half months. But he's also preparing and he's planning and he's plotting. It's not one or the other, it's both and. Full reliance on God, but yet using the gifts and the brains and the accountability and the the body of Christ as it ought to be used. That's the model of Nehemiah. He planned and he did it well. Look at verses 7 and 8. Nehemiah goes on and says, you know, king... We're going to have a little bit of problem as I go back to Jerusalem. There's the trans-Euphrates governors. They're going to be offended that we're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're going to take that as an act of war. They're going to stop us. They're going to stop us in our tracks. They're not going to give us passage through the land. Can you give us some passports? The only name they're going to listen to is yours. Will you write down that we can have safe passage? And when we get to Jerusalem... Will you send a letter on your behalf to Asaph? Asaph is not a household name. Asaph is not the name you drop when you want to impress people that you know somebody. Who on earth knows who Asaph is? He's the forest keeper a thousand miles away. Not a prestigious job. We have no reason to believe he's a prestigious man from a prestigious family. Nehemiah has thought through this. He's planned. He's plotted. He's prepared. He's thought about how do I get from A to B? Who's going to stop me? And when I get there, how am I going to get the supplies? Who owns them? And what letters do I need in order to purchase them? He's thought through the process a little bit better than my friend Brian for his wedding. He's thought through the process. And in verse 9, we see that the king sends him With the cavalry. You say, well, where did the cavalry come from? I don't know. I think of Ephesians 3.20, which says that God can do exceedingly beyond, but we would ask and think. We don't know that 
that Nehemiah asked for this, but God provided it. Because Nehemiah is obedient, he's, he's prayed, and he's fasted, and he's mourned, and he's plotted, and he's prepared, and he's planned, and he's ready to go, and God provides the increase. Then we come to verse 10. Allow me to read it. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Take it to the bank. This is not the last time we will meet Sambalat. He happens to be the governor of Samaria, or Tobiah, his half-wit sidekick. When you and I are involved in kingdom work, when we're sold out for the Lord, when we prayed and we planned and we plotted, and we fasted and we mourned and God has given us a vision and we're going forward. The enemy of our souls, the enemy of God's kingdom, the enemy of humanity, Satan and his minions, they're going to raise up a Sanballat. They're going to raise up a Tobiah. They're going to raise someone up to discourage us, to get in our way, to somehow meddle with the plans. But I believe that Nehemiah, before it was written, Believe Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hands. He turns it wherever he wills. In other words, Nehemiah believes that even when Sambalat and Tobiah rear their ugly heads, he serves a God that is over anything human, anything on earth. He serves a God that can do the impossible. And so he moves forward. He seizes the day. Carp diem. He, he plans. He prays. He plots. He prepares. He fasts. He mourns. And he moves forward. He's got a dangerous boss. A dangerous supervisor. And yet that's not going to stop him. He's got tradition. He's got a job. That's not going to stop him. He's got enemies. It's not going to stop him. He's got trans-Jordan or trans-Euphrates governors. They're not going to stop him. He's going to move forward. It's a beautiful picture of being fully reliant on God and yet using the gifts and the people that God has brought in our lives to accomplish His will. Powerful prayer and prior planning, they prevent poor performance. My dad's right. Nehemiah's right. Brian and Jeff and maybe some of you need more Nehemiah in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the model of Nehemiah. I thank you for the example that he is to us. And may we incorporate that model into our lives, being fully reliant on you being reliant in prayer and fasting and mourning, but not being without planning and preparation. Father, help us to be wise like Nehemiah. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.